0: Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet them, treat them, and street em. Today's date is March 16th, 2021, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Mama, I'm Coming Home for Outpatient Treatment of a Pulmonary Embolism. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Corey Heinz. He is an emergency physician in Roanoke, Virginia. He is also the CME editor for Academic Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGM, Corey.
1: Thanks, Ken. Always great to be here.
0: Well, you know that if I was going to be recording with you, I had to start thinking. Get my mountain bike out. Start training on my mountain bike. I've been vaccinated. Now all they need to do is open the border and we could be hanging out in the hills of Virginia doing some mountain biking
1: together. I know you've got your Get Out of Canada Free Pass and everything, but apparently only our southern border is open, so... Um, Yeah, I've been trying to get out as much as possible. It's been kind of a long winter for us, although I know that you guys have longer winters, but spring seems to finally be springing.
0: Well, my fingers are crossed that by the next time we are doing an SGM hop, somehow, in some way, we could do this in person after we go out for a nice mountain bike ride. All right, but people don't like hearing banter too much. They don't like talking about weather on podcasts. Let's get to the case of the day.
1: All right, Ken, well, you are evaluating a 48-year-old female for pleuritic chest pain. She's low risk by Wells' criteria, but perk rule positive because of an apodectomy last month. Her D-dimer comes back elevated, of course, so you order a CTPA to evaluate for pulmonary embolism. The radiologist notes a distal subsegmental PE on the right. The patient has normal vital signs and no comorbidities, and you wish you'd never ordered that D-dimer.
0: Oh, the D-dimer. I have a dance that I do when I get the D-dimer back when it's negative. It's called my Happy D Dimer Dance. You don't want to see it. Just like I can't sing, I can't dance either.
1: Isn't there a song I can't sing, I can't dance?
0: Uh, What's it called? The Milne song?
1: (laughs) I think it's Genesis.
0: Well, historically, most patients with PEs have been admitted to the hospital in the US. This is in contrast to Canada, where papers in the early 2000s demonstrated the safety of outpatient management of PEs. A study from 2010 showed that half, that's 50% of PE patients from one centre in Ontario, and in fact that centre is my tertiary care centre, we were safely discharging patients and treating them as outpatients.
1: The PE guru, creator of the perk rule and editor-in-chief of academic emergency medicine, Dr. Jeff Klein, was senior author on a paper that looked at treating venous thromboembolism with outpatient management using a DOAC. This relatively small study reported successfully treating 51% of DVT patients and 27% of PE patients with rivaroxaban.
0: So literature from the U.S. reports that 90% of patients diagnosed with PE are admitted. Another study showed that less than 10% of PE patients were discharged home from the ED for outpatient therapy in the US.
1: A couple of international guidelines support the outpatient treatment of ED patients with low-risk PE. This includes the European Cardiology Society and the British Thoracic Society.
0: The American College of Emergency Physicians (ACEP) has a clinical policy that addresses this issue. The ACEP policy gives outpatient management of PE patients a level C recommendation. And what they specifically said was, quote, selected patients with acute PE who are at low risk for adverse outcomes, as determined by the PESI, simplified PESI, or Hestia criteria, may be safely discharged from the emergency department on anticoagulation with close outpatient follow-up.
1: PESI, or the Pulmonary Embolism Severity Index, is a risk stratification tool based upon studies by Danze et al. and Choi et al. The PESI consists of 11 criteria with a different number of points awarded for each variable. This can be complicated, and there's an online calculator to help.
0: So that's my second favorite number, 11. But they do have a simplified PESI score. Now, it would have been ironic if—well, maybe not ironic, but it would have been awesome if it was down to 5 criteria, but it was 6. 6. So I have to count on my other hand, too. So it has six criteria. And what's different about this simplified version is also, rather than getting different numbers for each criteria, it was only one point. So it was a zero or a one for each criteria. But it also is available on MDCalc to calculate the simplified PESI.
1: The Hestia criteria is another scoring system to identify low-risk PE patients that could be considered for outpatient PE treatment. Like the PESI score, it has 11 criteria and an online calculator. If all 11 criteria are negative, the patient is low risk with a predicted mortality of 0% and VTE recurrence of 2%. However, if one of the criteria is positive, the patient is not low risk. These patients are not considered eligible for outpatient management based on this score, and it's recommended that they be admitted for inpatient therapy.
0: All right, that's enough background material to get us set up for the clinical question. What is the question we're going to try to answer on today's podcast?
1: What are the current disposition practices and outcomes for U.S. patients with PE? And the reference? Westifer et al., outpatient management of patients following diagnosis of acute pulmonary embolism from academic emergency medicine in March 2021.
0: All right, let's do that. Pico, what was the population, Corey?
1: Patients 18 years of age or older between July 2016 and June 2018, presenting to one of 740 acute care hospitals and receiving a diagnosis of PE based upon their ICD-10 codes.
0: And then they excluded patients who were diagnosed with a PE in the previous 90 days, those patients who expired or died during their ED visits, and they also, interestingly, excluded hospitals in the database that admitted 100% of their PE patients.
2: Actually, Ken, that was only for the hospital-level analysis.
0: Okay, well, why don't you uh, point that out once we get into the nerdy section? What was the intervention?
1: Outpatient management.
0: And how about the comparison? Inpatient management. And then let's run through their outcomes. What was their primary
1: outcome? Initial disposition from the ED. And their secondary outcomes? Costs, return visits to the ED, such as chest pain, shortness of breath and bleeding, and rehospitalization within 30 days.
0: Well, this is the March Academic Emergency Medicine <sighs> out off the press episode, which means we have the lead author on the show, Dr. Lauren Westerfer. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State. She is the co-founder of Foamcast and a pulmonary embolism and implementation science researcher. Dr. Westover serves as the social media editor and research methodology editor for Annals of Emergency Medicine and an associate editor for the New England Journal of Medicine, Journal Watch Emergency Medicine. However, she is now known as the newest faculty member of the SGEM HOP. Welcome back to the SGEM, Lauren.
2: Thanks y'all so much. Happy to be here.
1: How does it feel to be in the other seat this time and be the interviewee rather than the guest skeptic?
2: Love it. I love talking to y'all, love talking research, and love talking P.E.s. It can't get better.
1: And Lauren, I got to say, several years back when we first did a podcast or something together, I did not expect the Georgia accent, but I love it. I grew up in North Carolina, and it's, it's good to hear my, my kind of people. <laughs> but I thought,
0: were, I thought you were from Florida on the, on the Gulf side originally
2: florida north carolina they call it the redneck riviera <laughs> the panhandle of florida right over by alabama and then uh, spent seven years in chapel hill north carolina
1: excellent can you can you do know that the further north you get in florida the further south you get in the u.s right no i was not
0: aware of that but that's why you know the, it, there's always so many more layers to know <laughs> well we'd like to give you an opportunity to give you a shout out to your co-authors on this study lauren
2: Yeah, uh, I'm lucky to be mentored by a great team at the UMass Bay State Institute for Healthcare Delivery and Population Science. So there are hospitalists on here, Peter Lindenauer and Mihaela Stefan, who are just so great and have mentored me through a lot of this research. And then, of course, um, our biostatisticians who are amazing.
0: All right, Lauren, can you give the conclusions from your paper?
2: Despite guidelines promoting outpatient management, few patients are currently discharged home in the United States. However, practice varies widely across hospitals. Return visit rates were high, but most did not result in hospitalization.
0: All right, Corey, let's go through the quality checklist for observational studies. The first question is, did the study address a clearly focused issue?
1: Yes, it did, Ken.
0: Did the authors use an appropriate method to answer their question? They did. Did they recruit the cohort in an acceptable way? Yes. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. How about the outcome? Was it accurately measured to minimize bias? They were. Do you think Lauren and her team identified all important confounding
1: factors? That's a little harder to say given the the breadth of the the issue.
0: How about the follow-up of subjects? Was it complete enough?
1: Yes. How precise are the results? There were fairly narrow confidence intervals. And do you
0: believe the results?
1: Yes, I do. Do you
0: think the results can be applied to the local population?
1: Uh, unsure, Ken.
0: And the 11th question, the final question, do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Uh, yes, it does. Well, I would have to say from the U.S. perspective, it does. Yes. Maybe not from the Canadian perspective, A. Eh? All right, let's go through the results. The cohort of patients identified in the database was just over 61,000 patients. The mean age was 62 years, with slightly more female patients. About two-thirds of patients had Medicare or Medicaid, while 29% had private insurance. The top three comorbidities for these PE patients were hypertension, chronic pulmonary disease, and obesity.
1: What was the key result, Corey? The vast majority, 96% of patients diagnosed with PE, were admitted to the hospital.
0: All right, and that primary outcome was the initial disposition from the emergency department. What were the actual numbers?
1: So 4% were discharged from the ED at the index visit, and 96% were admitted. All right, let's run the secondary outcomes. Outpatient charge was $1,214, while the total cohort was 9225
0: And just more than a quarter, 28%, of those discharged had a return visit, which means three-quarters, or 72%, did not have a return visit to the emergency department.
1: 11% of those who were discharged were subsequently admitted on a return visit, which means 89% were not.
0: And there were a number of factors associated with admission. Those were respiratory failure or hypoxia, shock, hypotension heart failure, and malignancy.
1: 1.9% of the admitted patients in the study died.
0: And then 1.3% of patients returning within 30 days were for a bleeding-associated diagnosis. So those were the key results we wanted to go through. Y'all ready for our five nerdy questions there, Lauren?
1: You bet. I think that was more Texas, but you know, it's close.
0: Oh, you see, that's the thing. I, I, I'm trying to make y'all feel comfortable. <laughs> you can start doing Canadian accents for me if you want. All right, you, but you're ready. You're ready for our five questions. You good to go? Good. Okay, so first question was about this database. You used the premier healthcare database, the PhD, for this retrospective cohort study. This is a publicly traded company. Can you tell us a bit more about this resource and why you are confident in the fidelity of the data?
2: So this is a huge database. It captures 740 acute care hospitals all in the United States um, and those hospitals contribute data to it and it ends up capturing about 20% of all U.S. hospital admissions and the database essentially has logs that are time and date stamped of all items, services, all diagnostic tests, lab work, everything that's sort of performed. And so, you know, it sounds great, but obviously with any database, you wanna make sure that the veracity of what you're getting and here they have a pretty intense data validation and audit process. So they go through, if there's missing data, they return it back to the hospital um, to really make sure that that, that process um, is, is Sort of truthful um, and accurate, and it's been it's been used extensively in research more on the like the hospital inpatient medicine side, but to look at a lot of different things, specifically hospital variation.
0: So you're pretty confident in the data. Now you said that it represents twenty percent of admissions in the U.S. and it was about eight hundred hospitals. How many hospitals are there in the U.S. roughly with emergency departments? Then
2: that I don't know.
0: Okay, because I was just wondering, maybe some of the bigger hospitals are represented there, which would obviously have more admissions than some of the smaller or critical access hospitals. So I I was understanding that it represents 20% of all admissions in the U.S. I wonder how many hospitals it represents in the U.S.?
2: There's a white paper in the references that has, that has sort of the more detailed granular data because there is a little bit of difference in representation. So it's sort of nationally representative, but larger hospitals are a little bit overrepresented, just like some geographic regions are a little bit overrepresented as well.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, Ken. Most hospitals in the U.S. are going to have emergency departments, and I think that's probably a function of Mtala. I don't have – this is purely anecdotal and purely experiential – um, even our small rural hospitals will have an emergency department. The question is, where do they get admitted? And and you know, I work for HCA, which has both large hospitals as well as a ton of rural hospitals. And I guess Lauren works for Premier, who I don't know what their makeup is. Do you you just use the Premier database? Didn't actually.
2: Yeah, I don't actually work for Premier. So our hospital contributes to it. Um, and so we, we used, um, you, you, you can buy sort of certain amounts of data. So we used uh, NIH grant funding to purchase access to this database just because, uh, you know, we use it for a lot of different projects.
0: Well, I just had my rural hat on there. And I know that when I work in a smaller center, our admission rate is lower and not admission rate for PEs, just, you know, based on how many patients you see that day. We don't have a high percentage of our patients that are admitted, but when you look, work at a larger center, they can have higher acuity and have a higher admission rate. Now, unique to the United States, though, you guys have freestanding emergency departments as well. So I don't know if that would be captured in this premier healthcare database.
2: So with our data, we excluded patients that um were uh like you couldn't it was it it was like if you uh were seen in the emergency department and then you had a discharge order, as in like transfer to another hospital. That was not captured as because we we didn't want to, um, you know, not count those patients as as discharged patients when they were ultimately transferred because there wasn't um, a hospital or something like that, and they had to go somewhere else. So we we in the manuscript we detailed how we handled those cases, but it was specifically to capture those sort of critical access or places that don't have inpatient care.
0: That's why it's great to have one of the authors on the paper because you can really get down to the granular detail. So I really appreciate having you on.
1: Okay, so question number two was about risk stratification. Did you consider calculating risk scores such as PESI, simplified PESI, or Hestia for the patients, and would it have been useful in interpreting the results?
2: Yeah, this would have been helpful, I think, for if, if two things had happened. Um, one is that if our question would have been, what proportion of patients Um, are discharged or admitted that are recommended by those criteria. Those criteria can recommend different patients as well. Um, But that wasn't really our question. Our our question really was what happens in the real world? Because we know that often when tools are applied, maybe they're not applied completely or in different practice settings, they're applied a little bit differently, or maybe people are are discharging higher risk patients or lower risk. And so we wanted to really get that real world benchmark as like, where are we in this process? Um, And if anything, it might be a slight I overestimate because it would capture people that are not truly low-risk pulmonary embolism, but maybe um, you know left for some other reason because it was in keeping with their values. The other issue here is that that is one limitation of the database that we used. the The database has a lot of things; it does not have vital signs, um, but importantly, it does not have reliable past medical history or comorbidities. So we have those, and they're good for admitted patients, but we know preferentially that in Pretty much any database that you get, or at least a lot of databases, if it's not collected prospectively um, in terms of like you're really searching out for specific comorbidities, People who are treated as outpatients or emergency department patients don't have those lists. We don't go into those big details and code all of those things. And we didn't really want to introduce a lot of bias there. So we incorporated it into our model, but we didn't want to rely on that because we were worried about introducing bias just simply based on coding things of who was admitted and who was discharged.
1: Sure, that makes sense. That's interesting. So the database wasn't complete, so you may not have even been able to get the scores on a good portion of the patients?
2: No, we couldn't get them on any patient. So the, that database simply does not have it. It's not that it's missing data. It just, the database doesn't incorporate those fields.
1: Gotcha.
0: Yeah. So if it doesn't capture that metric, what was their blood pressure? What was their heart rate? What was their O2 sat? It's not there to be mined in the database. So it's one of the limitations of it. Interesting. So the third nerdy point was about size and location. We did not see any distinction about the size or location of the pulmonary embolisms. The ASEP clinical policy gives a level C recommendation whether or not to withhold anticoagulation in adult patients with subsegmental PE. And in fact, what they actually say is, quote, Given the lack of evidence, anticoagulation treatment decisions for patients with subsegmental PE without associated DVT should be guided by individual patient risk profiles and preferences, end of quote. Ooh, so like shared decision-making.
2: Yeah, so we, again, we didn't have sort of the granular information on the size of PE, but also that's complicated because we know that size of pulmonary embolism doesn't necessarily correspond to hemodynamic instability or the other risk factors that may uh, indicate you have an intermediate risk or high-risk PE, formerly called submassive or massive PE. And so um, we didn't incorporate that there, but it's interesting because the decision to not anticoagulate subsegmental PEs, it's complicated. um, And it makes sense in your isolated PEs, uh, you know, especially without a DVT, because we know uh, it's been well-documented, the interrelated reliability of CTPA identifying subsegmental clots is not good, like really, really bad. So there's about a one one in four, one in five chance that it could be a false positive, that that PE may not be real. So that would make sense, like don't anticoagulate somebody if the PE ain't real. Um, but in general, this practice is extremely uncommon in the United States at present. And particularly during the time period we studied 2016 to, to 2018, um, it would have been so, so few people.
1: Okay. So question number four, we're talking about subgroup analysis. You did some subgroup analyses based on the hospital location, size, teaching, and rural or urban. Did you find anything interesting? And what is your interpretation for any differences?
2: Yeah, so we were, we were really interested in hospital-level variation and kind of wondering, does that play a role here? So we did a, a separate hospital-level analysis, and this just is, if you look at the inclusion criteria for our, our overall study, um, we included, you know, these 740 hospitals, et cetera. But for this, we looked at, we were looking at variation, and to predict discharge, you had to discharge somebody. Um, so you couldn't have a 0% discharge rate or a 100% admitted rate. So we included, it was, it was a little over 500 hospitals in this analysis. Um, and the median proportion of those discharged was higher at small hospitals. It was 7.5% compared with medium and large size hospital where it was like three to 4%. And also slightly higher in rural hospitals and hospitals in the West compared to like North or South. But we did a hospital level analysis using this is gonna be fun, um, the interval odds ratio, which sort of what it does is it helps interpret hospital level factors and it you gotta take into account the unexplained between hospital Uh, Variability, And so um, we used interval odds ratio 80%, um, which is sort of like it gives you an 80% probability that the odds ratio for that risk factor, say a small hospital or a rural hospital, lies in that interval. And when we did that, um, looking at these uh, hospital level factors, nothing really emerged. So when you looked at that, the the odds ratio intervals were pretty wide, um, so we couldn't really confidently say that any of that stuff was really meaningful at that hospital level. But overall, we looked at a median odds ratio, which is just another complicated statistic, but it allows you to compare that odds ratio for a hospital, the hospital to which a patient presents being an important factor in disposition, um, to the odds ratio for, like, you know, having shock or respiratory failure or private insurance or public insurance for those things. Um, and that was one of the most uh, significant predictors of disposition. And so it sort of showed us that. The hospital to which a patient presents is an important factor. Like there's something there at the local level. Um, but in terms of getting the granular detail, is it small, is it rural, is it urban? Um, we couldn't really adequately make any conclusions there.
1: That's interesting. I, I think that obviously some really fantastic statistics there to, to, to get to that level of detail. I think it's interesting that you say that the local factors seem to be one of the most important things because thinking about, again, back to the anecdotal and thought process of this, you know, I work at a hospital where I don't know that any of us are discharging PE patients. I think we would have fallen into your 0% category, maybe, maybe one. And I know this data. I know it's probably fine. I know they do it in Canada and Europe, but I'm not going to be the first one at my hospital to do it, right? So that's your local factor is if your hospital isn't doing it, then your hospital isn't doing it. And if your hospital is, then you're going to have it happen more. You just, and and it's, an, it's an interesting kind of how we function in our little little tribes and localities.
2: Corey, I think you're setting us up perfectly for Ken's last question.
0: Yeah, that was a nice segue because that's about concordance. And, and this is question number five, and the answer will probably take about five hours because It's like, why do you think clinicians are still admitting the vast majority of patients? 96%. I mean, it's hard to get 96% of doctors, let alone 90% of Americans, to agree on anything. So 96%, I mean, that's huge consensus. When data exists that the number could be cut in half, and in fact, the number was probably even higher because you excluded over 200 hospitals that admitted 100% of PE patients. What is driving this clinical practice in the U.S. when in Canada we're discharging half our PE patients for outpatient management?
2: This, uh, this is a great question. And actually I'm recruiting for a study aiming to answer this exact question. So, Corey, I'm going to send you a follow-up email. Um, <laughs> we have lots of hypotheses um, the easy targets are you know every everyone in the united states says well it's medical legal like i'm worried about that but when you really get down to there's this fear and part of it is pe mortality is often touted at 18 percent you're like oh one in five one in six of my patients could die but when you look at the data and in all comers especially of recent data pe related mortality so not all cause mortality like they die of their cancer that cause their pe PE-related mortality is more in the 1% to 3% range, not the 1% to 5% range. Um, And, you know, in the U.S., we also have this issue with follow-up because healthcare here, you know, people may not have doctors or the ability to afford medications. But I, what I personally think is interesting is sort of what Corey was talking about is I think our data demonstrate here that there is something going on at that local level, um, and maybe it's comfort um, or culture or some other factor sort of, I don't want to be the only one to do it or whatever. Um, and so we, we did find in our hospital level analysis, which is that's the only part of the analysis where we excluded the hospitals where you had to, um, uh, you had to discharge at least a little, you know, one one patient, um, one patient, just
0: send one patient
2: home. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, the the fact that that was a, a strong predictor of hospital admission, you know, right behind like you know shock and things like that, where you're like, obviously, I'm going to admit those patients, um, makes me think that local determinants are here. Uh, but again, I hope maybe I'll be back on in the future to discuss uh, that next study.
1: You know, honestly, I, I'm I'm I look forward to talking to you more about this, Lauren, because. I think that as much as we hate protocols in medicine, like you have to do the sepsis protocol, you have to do the stroke protocol, et cetera, et cetera, I think we also love protocols in medicine. And if our hospital had a protocol for how to discharge patients with PE and what who can be discharged and where they're going to go after they get discharged, then then you'd be happier to do it. Right, but if you're just left to your own devices, and it's like, well, I mean, do what you want, but there's no, for lack of a better term, there's no backup, or there's no protection, there's no safety net as to what happens if you do that, what are they going to do, then, then you're just kind of hanging in the wind, um, Anyway, so that's much further discussion. I, I probably I think... should
2: have consented you before we started interviewing from my, you <laughs> for my qualitative study, uh, but I'm going to use all this. No, I'm just kidding.
1: We can do retro- re- retrospective <laughs> consent. as <is>
2: fine.
1: <laughs> Emergent consent.
0: When I recorded the podcast with Dr. Chris Carpenter, I think back in 2013, that highlighted this divide of you know Canadians discharging, or, or at least where we work, 50% of our PE patients, and yet 90 plus percent were admitted in the U.S., uh, Chris Carpenter's university, Wash U, had actual protocol. So I will reach out to Chris and see if that protocol still exists for doing exactly what we were talking about just now, about if a protocol exists, would the department be more likely to adopt it and follow it on this issue of discharging pulmonary embolism patients home? So I will reach out to Dr. Carpenter, my BFF, and see if that WashU protocol is still in place. And if it is, can I get an update or the original one and repost that for other people to consider?
2: We also, at my hospital, we do this, so I can also send you our protocol as well, if you're interested.
0: Oh, speaking of local culture then, um, and you being this, you know, this PE research guru... What are your hospital stats like? How many patients are you discharging? Not you personally, but just globally.
2: First of all, I'm I'm not a guru. I'm still very much a junior novice nascent PE researcher. Um, but I'll tell you, so that's, that's the reason that I investigated this, is we uh, implemented an outpatient protocol, and I was just starting to get my feet wet in implementation science and fascinated by the gap between we know there's evidence that we can do this safely and then what are we actually doing. And we were like, well, we'll be able to get our numbers way up. So we were discharging about... Uh, 4 to 5% of PEs at that time. Um, we bumped it up to like 9% with a protocol. So still not a lot. And of course, you know, we we went back and we looked, were these appropriate? Were there things missed? Would some of these patients have been appropriate for um, hospital discharge? And we found things that like, that I'm bringing forward in my future research, why I think is people be like, well, they have a pulmonary infarct. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's not actually an exclusion criteria, but people sort of get it in their minds. Also, we, we serve a very uh, underserved community at times with uh, other issues like housing instability um, where, you know, it, 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 in some of those cases made follow-up uh, or at least uh, the decision to anticoagulate somewhat difficult. So those are our hospital stats for full transparency.
0: <laughs> if you're trying to market this as a, a therapeutic intervention from a drug, You would say, oh, look at we increased our discharge rate by 100%. We doubled Mm -hmm. it from 4% (laughs) to 8% with an absolute increase of 4%. So 1 in 25, a number needed to discharge, and NND for PE. All right. Well, we've got to stop talking. I could talk to you guys nerdy all day long, but maybe everybody doesn't want to listen to us talk nerdy all day long. And they've already arrived at the hospital. They've turned their car into a classroom. Their 20 minute commute is over and they want to get on with it. So Corey, can you comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions?
1: Can we agree with the author's conclusions.
0: And can you give us an SGEM bottom line?
1: In patients with PE, given the right criteria, can be discharged home from the ED. U.S. healthcare systems should consider decreasing the number of patients who are admitted with the understanding that the risk of return visits is fairly high.
0: And how are you going to resolve the case you presented?
1: You discuss anticoagulation outpatient management with the patient. She prefers to be discharged and has close follow-up with her primary care physician in two days. Using shared decision-making, you and the patient agree to discharge her home on oral anticoagulants.
0: And so how are you going to take Lauren and her team's new study and apply it clinically?
1: Consider using risk score systems and having shared decision-making discussions with your patients to determine who can be safely managed as an outpatient.
0: And how would you relay this information to the patient at the
1: bedside? So I have good news and bad news. The bad news is you have a small blood clot in your lung. The good news is your vital signs are normal and all your other risk factors are minimal. There's some evidence that you do not need to be treated with blood thinners. However, most people still decide to be treated for their blood clot. This treatment can either be in the hospital or as an outpatient. There's a 1 in 4 chance that if you decide to be treated at home, that you will come back to the hospital, and a 1 in 10 of those patients who come back will need to be admitted when they return. What would you like to do?
0: It's time to announce the Keener Contest, and last week's winner was another win for Dr. Stephen Steltz from New Zealand. He knew that approximately three to five percent of Americans have a brain aneurysm at some point in their lifetime. Lauren, do you have a keener contest question for us for this episode?
2: Sure. Um, y'all, what is the Hestia criteria named after?
0: Well, if you know what the Hestia criteria—oh, is it Dr. Hestia? Is that what it's named after? Is that the correct answer? <laughs>
2: <laughs> we will solicit other, other answers. Oh. not, Kent, he's wrong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have the correct answer, then email me at the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. But now it's your turn, sgemmers. What do you think of this episode on outpatient management of PE patients? Tweet your comments using the hashtag sgemhop. What questions do you have for Lauren and her team? Ask them on the sgem blog. The best social media will be published in AEM.
1: And don't forget, there are now two ways to get CME credit for this podcast. Those of you who are subscribers to Academic Emergency Medicine can head over to the AEM homepage to get credit for this podcast and article.
0: And you can get CME credit for this episode, even if you're not a member of AEM. All the SGEM episodes are now being accredited for CME. The content's always free, but there's a small fee for the CME. This small fee will help support the SGEM. Keep this FOMED, this free, open access medical education, knowledge translation project going. Why not get credit for what you're already doing? Listening to the SGEM. I do really appreciate your support.
1: Thank you, Lauren, for coming on the S and talking about your hot off the press publication.
2: Thanks for having me off.
0: And we'll see you next time, Corey on a mountain bike.
1: Absolutely looking forward to it.
0: It'll make it a difficult podcast. I'll have to be, bring my field recorder and we'll do it on the mountain bike. <laughs> that would be an interesting episode.
1: Do they have like the gimbals, you know, for the GoPros? Do they have yeah. a gimbal for a microphone? I don't know. Uh,
0: we're going to find out. And to finish <laughs> the show, Lauren, can you give us the SGM tagline in your panhandle accent?
2: Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic SCAD to Emergency Medicine.
0: Talk to everyone next week i